Welcome to Louisville. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Well, we're delighted to have you, and we want to talk some tonight about your latest book, Revelations, Visions, Prophecy, and Politics in the Book of Revelation. But to get to the present, we have to go a bit back into the past, the recent past. And uh, I think in that case, what we'd like to start off uh, doing is, is talking about the Gnostic Gospels, that book that really captured the attention of so many Americans 30 years ago and, yes. and continues to do so. I wonder if you would mind just recounting the, the story of that amazing discovery and also commenting on why you think your book had such an impact, such a cultural impact in the late 20th century. Well, that's a lot of questions all at once. <laughs> Thanks, Krista. I mean, first of all... Um, I guess for me the story started, you know, growing up in California and my family wasn't particularly religious. Uh, my father was a biologist who had given up the Bible for Darwin and thought, well, the Bible is just a bunch of old folk tales. So I was brought up in liberal Protestant churches, which were somewhat boring, I must say, <laughs> although I always found them, there's something about it that was powerful. But when I was... An adolescent, I was taken to an evangelical revival at Billy Graham in San Francisco at the Cow Palace. I think I was 13. Mm -hmm. And um, to my parents' horror, I loved it. (laughs) The music and the intensity and the passion of it was was magnificent. Mm -hmm. And and I just fell right in. And I, I was born again, and I loved it. And I went to a evangelical church that took Revelation very seriously. That's this book. And um, I was in that church for about a year, and it opened up a great deal to me. Uh, I had never met people whose world was, um, was open to that kind of creative religious imagination. And then I, I knew there's so many poets and musicians, and, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, area. Yes. But after a year, I had to leave that group, and I just, um, I just thought I couldn't take it because they start telling you exactly how to live and who you can associate with mm-hmm. and who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, and I just, I had to leave it. So I did, and, and, and years later thought, something about that was very powerful. Mm-hmm. What is it? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, what was so fascinating about that? Is it Christianity, or is it... Religion, which I, I was told it wouldn't survive into the 21st century. And it does. <laughs> and it, well, it certainly does, yeah. So that's what intrigued me. And I went off to uh, graduate school to find out mm-hmm. um, what really happened, if, if you could follow Jesus and the 12 disciples around Galilee. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, if you just learn Greek and you read the New Testament and you go back there, you could find out. First of all, you know, you can't, get back that far in history because Jesus didn't write anything. And the Gospels are written, you know, at least 30, 40 years after he died. But then my professors were reading all these secret Gospels I'd never heard about. That's not what I was hoping for, but it was a, it was a much more fascinating, interesting surprise. You found that early Christianity encompassed far more um, width and breadth than you had expected. 
Totally. And more than I wanted. See, I, I wanted a clear, simple story. Like you get in the book of Acts, you know. Yes. The, the early disciples are all of one heart and mind. They all believe the same thing and everything's easy and they know what the message is. And Jesus gives it to the 12 and the 12 go out and give it to the world. And, you know, and it kind of amplifies. You can trace it all the way back. But instead you find when you get to Harvard that there's this discovery that's been made in 1945. Yes. In a... In a tiny village in Egypt near Luxor, uh, the Nag Hammadi Library, and what is in that? Well, first of all, there were so many Gospels we never heard of. They, they were reading the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and the Gospel of Peter, and the Gospel of... And we were translating these from Coptic. I mean, they'd been written in Greek like the rest of the New Testament. But we were translating them, and, and, all, and I kept thinking, okay... That's great. We have to figure out what's there. Mm -hmm. But then the real question is, so what? I mean, what difference does it make that all this was found? How does it change the picture? And how did it change the picture? (laughs) Well, that's what the book is about. I mean, it's saying, (laughs) it did, it did. Um, It says, look, uh, what we have and what we call Christian tradition or Christian gospels is a small slice Mm -hmm. Of what was there. I mean, even the Gospel of Luke opens by saying, Luke says, well, many people have written about you know, what happened around Jesus' time before I write. Um, but I'm going to tell you the true story. So what you're saying is that this, <laughs> the, what we have now, orthodoxy, is actually a strand of something that was much, a much broader weave, if one wants to say that. Yes. I mean, it's sort of like you could finally look at the other side of the moon, and mm-hmm. you can see that there's whole areas of that story. I mean, after all, what's written about Jesus in the New Testament is maybe uh, 60 or 70 pages if you put all the Gospels together. And a lot of it, as you know, is repeat. Yes. But here were many others and mm-hmm. claims to have s- conversations about the secret traditions of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we were told it was all, ah, our professors said, and you know who they are. Uh, <laughs> they were all, they said, well, uh, Christopher Stendhal recently said to me, we just thought this stuff was weird. <laughs> and, but I was told that it was blasphemous and heretical and it made no sense. But, the but I liked is, it. The thing is, then, well, yes, you liked it. And, and you then went on to write a very accessible book for the American people who thought this was absolutely fascinating and made it a bestseller. And the Modern Library uh, decided it was going to be one of the 10 or 100 most influential books of the 20th century. That is high praise. That was shocking. And <laughs> in a very good way. Uh, so what, what are some of the themes that, that emerge within the Gnostic Gospels? Yes. I mean, first of all, I mean, to find... To find we, the, the, you know, the Gospel of Thomas opens by saying these are the secret sayings of the living Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the twin, Judas Thomas, wrote them. And then Jesus says things like, this is the one that got me. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And I thought, ah, well, you don't have to believe that. It just happens to be true. <laughs> but, but that's the way these sayings were. They, they're, they're powerful, some of them. Yes. And... And I thought, this, this is very interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament Gospels tell us that Jesus had a secret teaching, mm-hmm. right? Even in the fourth chapter of Mark, says Jesus taught his disciples many things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that Mark doesn't tell you what they are privately, that he didn't tell publicly. And we don't know what they were. So if he were like other rabbis in the first century, he would have taught them privately. And these claim to be that. And we don't know whether they are or not, but I thought they were quite amazing. Mm -hmm. So they complicate the picture. They complicate the picture, and do they give people a certain permission then to explore, perhaps, or to rethink their own tradition? Absolutely, because the, the message of the Gospels of the New Testament is believe in Jesus and be saved, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, really, to simplify, obviously. But the message of the Gospel of Thomas is, seek and you shall find. Uh, ask questions. Um, and you can find a path to the divine source within you. Mm -hmm. And I realize now, see, we were taught that, that, well, it wasn't apples and oranges. It was like apples and rotten fruit. There were the real <laughs> Gospels, and then there were the bad ones <laughs> that we called Gnostic Gospels because we didn't know what else to call them. And we knew there were heretics called Gnostics mm -hmm. who, who didn't believe anything. But now, you see, it looks very different. Because mm -hmm. now we understand this stuff a lot better. And it, it, it's more like the, the Gospels of the New Testament are what you start with. Mm -hmm. They're elementary. They tell you the story. Mm -hmm. Jesus' baptism, the healings, the public teaching, his death, his resurrection. But these other Gospels are really meant to be advanced level teaching. Mm -hmm. After you've been after you get that. And it's not that they're contrary necessarily. They, they, they really build on it in a, a mystical teaching in some cases. May I ask you the most elemental question just for the benefit Absolutely. of our, our audience out here? The word Gnostic itself yes. is it's from the Greek and it means? It's in the word uh, recognize, right? Okay. Gnosis, um, gnone means to know. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean what the word idenai, to know, means. Idenai in Greek means to see with your mind. It's like having a concept, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you know intellectually things like physics, mathematics, geography. But recognize is like, do you know that person? Mm -hmm. Do you know yourself? This is relational knowledge. It's like um, in French you have connaître and savoir or canon and wissen or... Conocer and Saber and other... So you have these different languages that have the knowledge of personal relationship. But this isn't head knowledge. This is, this is spiritual insight. I see. So it is that higher level then, beyond the, uh, the exoteric, there's the esoteric knowledge. That's what they claim. And people who hate it say, yes, but this is, this is, a, this is terrible, blasphemous heresy. <laughs> They, they don't mince their words, the people who are critical of the Gnostic <laughs> Gospels. No, they don't. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, uh, just moving on just a little bit about your second book, Adam, Eve, and the Snake. It, that's a, you uh, believe that you can take early Christianity as a lens for looking at 2,000 years in the way the church relates to its women members. Well, yes. I mean, the subtitle of that book is Sex and Politics in Early Christianity. <laughs> and and uh, it had many points of beginning. One of it was my late husband and I went to the southern Sudan, and we were visiting the foreign minister of the Sudan, who was a Dinka tribesman from, from the south. Mm -hmm. And he, when he was in college in England, had written a book of Dinka myths, and they were the creation stories. And they were really about 
who your relatives are, what kind of work you do, what happens when you die, you know, things like that. Tribal values, very practical. And then I began to think about our creation story, Adam and Eve, and think it's really very practical too. It's about um, why we die. It's about how hard people work. It's about the roles of men and women and so forth. So I decided to pretend I was an anthropologist of our culture and, and look at the way it was read, starting with Jesus of Nazareth and the rabbis of his time, Hillel and Shammai. Because mm-hmm. when they read that, the only time they mention it, the only time Jesus ever is said to have mentioned it, is when he was asked about divorce. So it was a very practical, usually about sexual practice, uh, but also about politics. So I got interested in it as a cultural Rorschach test. And also maybe a response to my, my wonderful father, who had no use for these old stories, because obviously Darwin says something very different and Adam and Eve is a pretty ridiculous story. But I was trying to show, I don't mean it's ridiculous, no. I mean that's what he thought. Yes. What it does is, is articulate the values of the culture. Mm-hmm. It shows how you're supposed to think about all of those things, sexual relationships, yeah. work, death. One thing that I can't help but notice is, you know, this is a very sophisticated argument that you're making. And yet, when one thinks of the subtitle, Sex and Politics, of that particular book, um, that's a sort of a, in miniature, that is how you write. You write in a very accessible style. One might say a non-academic style. <laughs> That's right. And I, I hope that that comes across as a compliment. Um, but <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but perhaps you could talk about that. I assume it's deliberate. That, that yes. you, are, you are essentially taking what's in the academy and presenting it to a, a, as literate a public as, as you can possibly reach. Well, you know Harvard because, you know, your father's on the faculty. And, and, and I felt as a graduate student I was basically being educated to write as if, if, as if it were badly translated from German. <laughs> and then it would sound, you know, lots of passive verbs. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but then I was living in New York, and my husband was in elementary particle physics, and a lot of our friends were artists and all kinds of people, New York people of every kind. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they'd say, and what do you do? And I'd say, religion. And they'd just back up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to say, but this is really interesting. So I wanted to write it so that people who were doing everything else from astrophysics to dentistry to um, construction work could could see what this was about. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like the snobbery that I'd, I'd sort of uh, bought into mm-hmm. as a graduate student. It's kind of part of the trade. But also, Gustav, I, when I write, I write in a scholarly jargon and scholarly way mm-hmm. and publish it in journals that maybe 100 people read mm-hmm. for our, because it's important to do that and yes. to create original work. Yes. And then translate it for people who don't happen to be in that club. Mm-hmm. That's a both-and scenario. It there's is. A, there's a utility, of course, in, in publishing in scholarly journals. It's very important because it, yes. it does advance uh, the knowledge of the people who are specifically in that area. But at the same time, um, you, by writing for such a wide audience, well, you get all kinds of responses. Would you mind sharing with us uh, how people <laughs> reacted to the Gnostic Gospels, to Adam, Eve, and the snake, and... Well, you can imagine. I I have somewhere a big box of mail. Some of it is hate mail. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's very explicit. (laughs) 
<laughs> some of it. Um, you know, and, and uh, because religion and Christianity arouses such deep feelings mm -hmm. in people, I'm not laughing at that. That's yeah. serious. And, and it really evokes, and, it, and it, it sort of structures the way so many people think. And then so many Americans, I mean, we're not taught to think about it. We're not even taught you can think about it. I went to a university that didn't have a religion department at Stanford at the time. And um, if you wanted to know anything about religion, they'd say, well, go to the chaplain. I never did that. Yes. <laughs> but, but there was no, you couldn't think about it. I mean, now they teach Buddhism and Islam and Christianity and Judaism, mm -hmm. as Princeton does, as so many other mm -hmm. colleges and universities do. Mm -hmm. But there was no way to think about it. Mm -hmm. So thinking about it at all in a way that isn't what you teach in Sunday school shocked a lot of people. Right. And, of course, you, you came up at the time when the secularization uh, thesis was, was dominant. Everybody expected religion to go away. Right. Uh, and it would be, would be replaced entirely by faith and science and rationality uh, rather than coexist in some way or other. I just want to shift gears, though. Yeah. Um, a bit and uh, into perhaps a, a somewhat of a more personal area, and that is, I, I think it's widely known that you uh, sustained two very uh, serious personal tragedies in your life with the death of a young son and then also the death of your husband within a year yeah. of each other. And I just wonder if I might ask, how, how did that affect your scholarship? Oh, it affected everything, of course. Um, we had one child, we'd been married 22 years, and uh, he was six and a half when he died of a very rare disease, and my husband's death happened in an accident, hiking. Mm -hmm. And by that time, we had tried to cope with the loss of this child we adored by trying to find children who needed parents as much as we needed a child. We'd adopted two children. Mm -hmm. So when my husband was killed, suddenly, I had a three-month-old baby and a two-year-old. And, uh, and I was then on my own. Mm -hmm. So at first, you know, one can't even think mm -hmm. when those things happen. Mm -hmm. um, and when I started to, well, I went back. I couldn't teach. It just, it just was impossible at the time. So I went to the Institute for Advanced Study mm -hmm. and started thinking about uh, when, I st when the brain began to reassemble. So I wrote about Satan, actually, mm -hmm. because... I was irritated at some minister who said something about God's will. And I thought, if, I remember one of the monks um, I met said, you know, God must love you very much. And I said, you know, it reminds me of what St. Teresa said. If this is the way he treats his friends, no wonder he has so few of them. <laughs> I was angry. Oh, yeah. You know? And I thought, well, it's not about God, but it would be nice to have somebody to blame. And in the early church, they... They would not say it, it was God that did things like that, which was not on my radar screen to think that way. Right. Um, but I thought it would be nice to blame Satan or somebody. Mm -hmm. And I began to think about the figure of Satan and, and how it emerged. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised by what I found. And that book became maybe some years after all of those uh, traumatic events happened. I began to write about the beginning of Satan, and, and it turned into something I totally didn't expect. It turned into a book about, about how communities divide, 
and how Christians came to demonize Jews and pagans and heretics. By associating them with the idea of Satan. Yes, and I wasn't expecting that at all. Mm -hmm. But that's what emerged. And Christer Stendhal, whom we both knew and I loved as a wonderful teacher, used to say that when your research surprises you, you've probably discovered something. That's a wonderful thing uh, to say. And in this case, out of this just terrible, terrible tragedy, then um, comes a discovery. Remind us what the title of that book is for those who'd like well, to... Well, that book was called The Origin of Satan. The Origin you know? of Satan. But, but my, my editor kept saying, well, you know, it could be about, about vampires. I mean, people <laughs> like what this book is about. But, but he asked me what I was interested in. I was trying to say, where did we get the figure of Satan? But what I learned was that when people take Satan seriously, whether it's in the first century or whether it's in the 21st century... They're not just talking about some supernatural conflict up there in the stratosphere. They're talking about what's happening right down here on earth. They're talking about people who belong to Satan and people who belong to God. And they can give you names and addresses. So, so it's about human communities. And I, th- I thought that's a... For me, that was a new insight, and it was one that I... I find it works in this book, too. Yeah, so talking about Satan in that case allows you to talk about people and how people divide in the most insidious ways. Yes, I remember when I was writing about it, it was quite a long time ago. It was when Yugoslavia was at war. Yes. And, and I read a, an article in the New York Times uh, by Cy Vance, who was mm-hmm. then the Secretary of State, and he said he was trying to negotiate war in Yugoslavia between Muslims... Uh, Croats and Serbs and he was so frustrated that nobody would help him Mm -hmm. that he said I'm going to the religious leaders because he was a religious man Mm -hmm. so he went to the Catholic bishops and he went to the Serbian Orthodox bishops and he went to the Muslim leaders and he said you've got to help me and he said all of them said the same thing which is those people you don't understand those people are devils and it's that kind of attitude that those people are devils, that conflict between two groups means God's group and Satan's group. Yeah. We have to just annihilate them. We can't even talk to those people. That's a way of interpreting conflict that, that can sound very right if you're sure you're that right. If you're absolutely certain of how right you are in the world. You know, um, after the book on Satan, you wrote a book that that had a powerful effect, again, like the Gnostic Gospels, is one that hit the New York Times bestseller list, your book on the Gospel of Thomas. And you have mentioned that on a couple of of instances earlier in our conversation. Uh, Would you talk to us about uh, how the figure of Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas is so different from the figure of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels? Well, I, was, I really love the Gospel of Thomas. That book was a book of love about the Gospel of Thomas. And, and the recognition that it's quite different from what you find, say, in the Gospel of John, which is very similar. Mm-hmm. Those two texts, um, again, an, another professor of mine shows that they're using the same kinds of sources, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of John. But they're, they're quite different in their approach to the source. So the Gospel of John says... Jesus is the Lamb of God. He dies for your sins. Believe in him and be saved. And what you're supposed to believe is, he says, you must believe that I am he. You know, that 
I am God, mm -hmm. right? And that's what the message of that book is. And the Gospel of Thomas, at first I saw them as very different, because mm -hmm. the Gospel of Thomas says, well, Jesus, of course, is the Son of God, but then so are you if you understand who you are created in the image of God. That is, who you are meant to be spiritually, that mm -hmm. everyone mm -hmm. is created in the image of God, and therefore we're all God's children, but we may not be aware of it. We may be so oblivious that we hate and violate and destroy each other. Mm -hmm. But when you really come to know who you are, mm -hmm. um, you know that's who we all are. And, and I now think, you know, the books are a contrast with each other, but mm -hmm. they can be also read as different levels mm -hmm. and, and not in conflict. And I think that is perhaps the way they were meant. Because there are many other texts we found like the Acts of John and the Gospel of Philip, by Christians who read the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Thomas together, not as a conflict, but as books that are meant to be read serially. You read John first, mm -hmm. and you get baptized, you have faith in Jesus. Then you go on to the teaching that teaches on another level. Mm -hmm. This really is a radical idea that you can take these different books, both from within what was described, what was made into the Orthodox canon, and the books that are outside of it, and read them as, as, as complementary to each other. Well, Gustav, it may sound radical for Christians, but you know, as you know from your, from your work in so many religions, there's not a religion we could name, or that I could name anyway, you might, that doesn't have an esoteric tradition. I'm thinking there's Islam, there's Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Judaism. They all have texts, right? And then they have, they have mystical interpretations. Mm -hmm. Except these in the early Christian movement were seen by some leading Christians as threatening mm -hmm. to the message or the unity of this movement, I think because it was under such threat of persecution. Prior and, and, to yeah. uh, Emperor Constantine. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. This is all right when Christianity was a very dangerous group to join mm -hmm. because you could be arrested and tortured and killed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to unify the church and I think the people who saw the danger and wanted to say, look, we all believe the same thing. We have a common creed. We have the same books. They wanted to eliminate those books because they, they, they create complexity. Ooh. So the, the faithful are to be sort of kept on a, on a simple level. Well, and you know what the word heresy means in Greek? Choice. It Choice. Does not, yes. yes. This isn't good for, for the flock. Choice. If you're leading a bunch of sheep, <laughs> if you're the only pastor, right, the yeah. only human there, and theirs are all sheep, then you don't give them a choice. You kind of herd them this way. Yeah, my goodness. Um, yeah choice is what it's about. Mm -hmm. Or a higher level. I was always interested that when I visit the Trappist monks, like you know the monks at Gethsemane mm -hmm. here, yes. uh, or the Trappist monks in Colorado that I have visited frequently, they have in the library books by the Dalai Lama and books of Jewish mysticism, mm -hmm. the Kabbalah, mm -hmm. And, you know, because the mystical books of, of our tradition of devotional development have been thrown out. Mm -hmm. And some of these are found 
among the garbage that was thrown out when Bishop Athanasius said, get rid of those secret books. He sounds like a real politician, Athanasius. Uh, <laughs> no question. Can you, can you sort of uh, describe him a, a little bit to put him in, in the, uh, the early Christian context as to what his effect on Christian literature was? This is the only bishop who gave a list. I mean, there was a lot of argument about what books should be in the New Testament, you know? Yes. And this is the only bishop whose list included the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of five that we have, one is from Cyril of Jerusalem from 350. One is from bishops in what is now Turkey from 363. One is from Theophilus of Am- Amphilocalum. <laughs> and one is from Gregory Nazianzus and so forth. And they, they have sort of, these are the books of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. No book of Revelation. Mm. This is the most controversial. Only one list out of five includes it. And that's the one we got. And that bishop was very political, as you say. He was trying to maintain a position with a newly Christian empire mm-hmm. and a newly Christianized emperor. Mm-hmm. And he was going from being the target of persecution almost overnight to becoming the richest man in, in the city because he controlled the food supply for the whole city. And there's something about going from persecution to control that huh. perhaps, yes. yes, is not so hard to understand. Yes, and, and there were many challengers. I mean, mm-hmm. other people wanted that position just as badly as he did. Mm-hmm. And he was deposed five times by Constantine's son, And finally, he found a use for the book of Revelation when he declared Constantine's son. This is after the death of Constantine, who'd supported him. Um, He said, you know, this man is acting just like the Antichrist. Could he be the Antichrist? (laughs) So he took the Christian emperor as Antichrist, which is totally strange, considering what John was actually writing about. He might have fit into American politics today. I think he would have done well. It took him 45 years to survive all the battles. Yeah, deposed five times. That must be a record. I think (laughs) that brings us to to Revelations, your book here. And what I'd like to do is just jump right into it. I was having lunch with a friend of mine who'd also read it, and he and I agreed that perhaps the most provocative single sentence in the entire book can be found on page 65. And I wonder if you could... I'll read it, and if you could just put this into the context of what what you're saying here. John, the author of of, uh, the book of Revelation, could hardly have imagined what he might have seen as the greatest identity theft of all time that eventually Gentile believers not only would call themselves Israel, but would claim to be the sole rightful heirs to the legacy of God's chosen people. Yes. Your words. Can you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I wrote that. Uh, What what surprised me, you know, when I started, I I went to the library and I looked at, there were hundreds of books on Revelation, and they were all about John, uh, the Christian author, and... So I started trying to figure out who he was and why he wrote it Mm -hmm. and realized I was surprised Mm -hmm. because everybody who wrote about him assumed that he's a Christian. At at 100 AD? uh, Yeah, maybe 95. 95. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the end of the first century. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, he's a follower of Jesus. That's Mm -hmm. clear. Mm -hmm. You can't read that book and not get it. That 
When he has his first vision, he turns around and he sees Jesus, the Messiah, risen from the dead, speaking to him as a glorified being, the way the prophets saw Mm -hmm. the manifestation of the divine beings. Mm -hmm. Um, So certainly he's a follower of Jesus. But I realized that he's a follower of Jesus, sort of like Jesus' disciple Peter. I mean, Peter wouldn't have said he was a Christian. Peter was a Jew who had found the Messiah. And so was Paul and James and Bartholomew and the others. They didn't think they'd started a new movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they didn't think they weren't Jews either, Mm -hmm. because, of course, they were. Mm -hmm. So there's some point in the history of this emerging movement that's kind of a splinter movement among Jews when it becomes a separate movement and, and more people who join are, are not Jews. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes something different. And that seemed to happen largely through Paul of Tarsus, who said, of course, he saw himself as a proud Jewish member mm-hmm. of God's people. Mm-hmm. But he said he was told by a vision of Jesus, whom he hated when he saw the vision that transformed his life. He said, I saw this vision and he spoke to me and I was wrong and he stopped me in my tracks and, and, and he told me to preach the message um, of, of, of his teaching to all the nations. So Paul's mission was to speak about God's Messiah to the Gentiles. And Paul created a way to do that that said if you're a Syrian or an African or a Spaniard and you're not a Jew you can you can become part of God's people if you believe in Jesus as Messiah whose whose terrible death on the cross actually was a was a way of atoning for for your sins and bringing you into God's people so that's the message that Paul teaches but John um, he might have agreed with Paul about that. But about a generation after Paul's death, there are people who are taking Paul's message and saying, what it really means is, we're not Jews, but we're even better. I mean, they've been disinherited. We're the new Israel. We are Israel. We are Jews now. They are the old Israel. We are the new, we're the real spiritual Israel. That's what Paul meant. Now, Paul didn't mean that, probably. But that's what it's taken to be. Mm-hmm. And a, I think that would have made John really angry. Maybe a footnote in here. Uh, who was and when was the first person, as far as we know, to call himself deliberately a Christian? The first one that we know who called himself a Christian is Ignatius of Antioch. And he's a Syrian Gentile convert living in Antioch. He's converted by Paul's message. He doesn't... Mm-hmm even want to bother to read the Hebrew Bible. Mm. He says, no, my scriptures are the cross, the resurrection, the faith in Jesus. It's Paul. Mm. And Paul is his, his apostle. Mm. And Paul's message is his message. Mm-hmm. And he tells people, we're preaching Christianity, not Judaism. That's the past now. I don't want to learn it from a Jew. You've got to learn it from a Gentile. Mm-hmm. This is the real message. And that's as late as the end of the first century, though, isn't it? That's about the year 110. It's about 10 years after. Interestingly, Ignatius wrote letters mm-hmm. to some of the very same cities in what is now Turkey 
that John of Patmos wrote, wrote to. Mm. But Ignatius wants to set up bishops. And he's very suspicious of prophets leading groups. He's all in favor of bishops. It's a different leadership model. Mm-hmm. It's one that comes out of Greek households and not Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. John is really a Jewish traditionalist. Mm-hmm. And his message is, we found the Messiah. He preached about the end of time. He's coming back. The end of the world is coming. Judgment Day is coming. Um, get ready. Mm-hmm. Get ready for the end of time. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what John is saying. And I think he would have thought... These Gentiles now think they can get into God's kingdom. They don't have to practice purity laws. They don't have to observe dietary laws. They don't have to observe purity in terms of sexuality. They, all they have to do is believe this thing. Mm-hmm. And he thought they were doing it very cheaply. Mm-hmm. So he's very angry at a prophet he calls Jezebel. That goes back yes. to <laughs> He calls her Jezebel because she's a Gentile. And she's saying... You don't have to observe food laws. You don't have to observe dietary laws. You can just get the message of Jesus my way, which is Paul's way, 30 years after Paul's death. Yes. So this is really what, what, the, what the book of Revelation marks is, is a sort of beginning of this struggle, right, in, in terms of who the followers of Jesus may be described as and how, how wide a group that actually is. Yes, I think we were taught earlier that it was a really smooth transition, sort mm-hmm. of. I had the impression in graduate school that Judaism kind of ended uh, in 70 when the temple was destroyed. And actually, I just recently heard scholars from Oxford just talk that way. Really? I mean, Judaism is obsolete and over. Mm. And then I was teaching in New York, and half my students were Jewish and people who hired me. And I was dealing with Jewish scholars and talking about Judaism as a very live mm-hmm. tradition and realized it was also very live then. Mm-hmm. And, and this is not a simple process at all. This is highly uh, contested with different groups mm-hmm. and very interesting, complicated story. Uh, yeah, there's a word for that now, the idea of the sort of replacement at AD 70, supersessionism, isn't yes. that correct? Yeah. It means, yeah. You used to be God's people. Now it's ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, not what, that's what, why John would have said, this is an identity theft. You call yourself Israel. <laughs> but, but you're not Israel, and you don't do anything mm-hmm. to create the purity that God requires of God's people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he was quite horrified by that. You know, I, I want to say, just to shift gears a little bit, when I... When I picked up your book to re- read it, I did so with some trepidation based on rather recent events. When I was writing for the New York Times, there were a number of occasions in which I covered uh, rather uh, small and in- intense religious groups that had taken the book of Revelation in and of itself as a text, as a, uh, as a predictor of the future. I'm thinking of the Branch Davidians. I'm also thinking of Heaven's Gate. Uh, and those were groups that came to very bad yes. ends. And then, of course, there were some people uh, who combined the theological with the political and would try to read the book of Revelation in terms of, say, the Persian Gulf War and political events of that, that nature. Does that in any way surprise you? Not at all. I mean, I guess what really interested me is not only who wrote it and how did it get into the New Testament. So this is a historical narrative. It's not really an interpretation of the book so much as a question of who wrote it, why did he write it, and why do people still read it, and how? 
And I think, you know, John writes in these graphic images. There's plenty of reason to be wary of this book because it's been read so many ways. Mm-hmm. Very powerfully. It's very, the impact of this book is very powerful. Mm-hmm. I found it so reading it again. You certainly go into uh, the, the, the various aspects of those powerful images. Would you share some with us now, some of the ones that really stand out and that, that seem to, to, to bring people forcefully into the text? Yes. I mean, what I realized is this is, this is the most controversial book in the New Testament, and it's, it's the hardest one to understand. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all about... Um, sense that evil has taken over the world, mm-hmm. but wait, God is coming and, and the armies of heaven are going to arrive as Jesus comes from the clouds and he's going to challenge the forces of evil at the battle of Armageddon and transform the world and there will be a glorious new world. It's a battle of good against evil. Now that's, that's a very powerful view. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and John is actually writing it as a refugee from a terrible war. That's the first thing that helped me understand it. It's, it's, he was living through a terrible war, the revolution against Rome that Jews fought to liberate themselves from the Roman domination, and they were totally crushed. I'm sure many people here have seen Jerusalem. You still see today a pile of rubble and stones where the Romans threw down the entire center city, the the great temple of God, and destroyed the, the center of, of Jerusalem altogether and devastated the hopes of people of Jerusalem. And John came out of that with a, with a deep uh, passion for his people and how God will, when is God going to come and bring justice back? And, and yet he couldn't write about Rome directly because it could be very dangerous mm-hmm. for a prophet to do that with the Romans garrisoned all over, all over that part of the world. So he wrote about the emperors as, you know, the, the, the beast from the sea and the, the human number is 666. And anybody would know it's the imperial name of the emperor in, written in code. Or he'd write about the explosion of Mount Vesuvius, but he didn't call it Vesuvius. He talked about a mountain exploding. This is a sign of the end of time. Or he talked about the great whore who looks very much like the goddess Roma as she's pictured mm-hmm. on coins. and in, So he's talking about first century events, but he's doing so in such a dreamlike way with these images that are so um, open, as some people say, a, a whore drinking out of a golden cup, mm-hmm. drinking blood, mm-hmm. a monster red with seven heads trying to devour an infant the, before it's practically born. I mean, they're grotesque and powerful images. So you could read into it almost any conflict that is a very deep, serious conflict, and people have done that. Allegory is such a temptation, is it not, in this way? And it was, in some ways, um, if, if I remember right, there, there are parts of the, of the book that were used uh, by some people to sort of say there are parallels here with the war against Iraq. Yes. Shock and awe. Well, you know, what I realize is this is really what's both powerful and potentially dangerous about this book. Mm-hmm. It can be read on either side of the same conflict. Mm-hmm. I, I looked at, at wars, for example. If you look, well, one example, it, it was used in the Crusades 
the the whore and the beast were the Muslims. Mm. Um, and and the, the Christians who fought the first crusade, the Catholics in the year 1000, were reading the book of Revelation. Mm. There's a book called God's Holy Warriors about that. Mm. Um, it was used um, in practically everywhere. It was used when Martin Luther split the Christian church apart. Luther used it picturing the whore of Babylon as the pope. In the Luther Bibles, you see pictures of the whore of Babylon with the papal dress. And then you see the first Catholic biographer of Luther pictures Luther as the seven-headed beast. So, so it goes both ways. Catholics and Protestants use it against each other, and some still do. And it's used in, it's used in the, uh, the Civil War on the south, mm-hmm. seeing the north as the beast mm-hmm. and the monster. It's used on the northern side using the Battle Hymn of the Republic mm-hmm. with the language of Armageddon for the terrible carnage of that war. It's used in World War II mm-hmm. by Hitler's propaganda minister to argue that Hitler is bringing in the thousand-year reign of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's used by the Allies, from Dr. Seuss doing political cartoons to the composer Olivier Messiaen writing the quartet for the end of time, mm-hmm. saying, this indeed is the end of time. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's used in the Iraq war by people in this government mm-hmm. and also by radical Muslims. Mm-hmm. So it, you, it can take any conflict and say, this is a war between good and evil. I'm good, you're evil. Or you could say, you're good and I'm evil. And we have to annihilate each other. Subject to vast abuse in that case. Use or abuse? I mean, it's useful in war to think you're right. Oh, well, absolutely. But Otherwise, we... <laughs> <laughs> it would be very difficult to fight. Otherwise... Can you use it in the 21st century and not annihilate everyone might be the question, though. Well, I've got to ask you, though, to uh, essentially to stand up for it, to stand up for its being included in the, in the New Testament, because it does have this other dimension, does it yes, not? Yes, it does. It, uh... it has many dimensions. Yes. Actually, you know, John Collins at Yale says these images are, are open to so many kinds of interpretation. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it's not only about fear and horror and, you know, the other being the enemy, but it's also about a book about hope. Mm-hmm. I realize many people, certainly in African-American preaching, in music like Walking in Jerusalem just like John or... John the Revelator, or in the preaching uh, of many preachers, mm-hmm. white and black, mm-hmm. all over this country, it's a book about justice mm-hmm. at the end of the world, mm-hmm. you know, finally. Mm-hmm. A hope of justice and a new world in which God is present and wipes away every tear. Mm-hmm. So it, it's even had a, a, uh, a use in the civil rights movement, did it not? Oh, it certainly did. And that's because of the way that the story unfolds and its trajectory then is toward something, as you say, hopeful, which is, if you would elaborate on that, the war ends. Well, yes, and then there's the judgment of the righteous. And and God will, I mean, the question at the beginning of the book is posed by the people who John sees in a vision underneath the throne of God, and they say, how long, O Lord, how long? Mm before you judge and avenge our blood on the people of the earth. Mm-hmm. And people who have suffered terrible oppression and slaughter um, 
asking for justice in a world that doesn't offer it. Mm -hmm. And there's no hope for it, or practically none. So that's why people in World War II, that's why Marc Chagall could use it as an image of the crucified Jewish people, mm -hmm. right? The crosses, he, right. as he, he pictured um, Jesus on the cross as, as, his, as his own people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's why Martin Luther King Jr. could see it as his people mm -hmm. fighting uh, insuperable odds mm -hmm. and, and hoping for justice. Mm -hmm. God's justice will come down eventually. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and then there is a hope of a glorious future. I mean, it's not like a tragedy where it's like Shakespeare at the end, you know, there are bodies all over the yes. stage. But <laughs> here, you know, there may be some bodies over there, uh, but those are the bad people. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and the ones that should be raised uh, are, are raised in a glorious uh, world to live with each other and with God. So what we have here is a book that can be used as a text of liberation. Yes, it can. I mean, either politically and socially, or it can be read mystically, as William Blake read it, mm -hmm. as, as a battle within, as mm -hmm. mystics have read it. Mm -hmm. So there are many ways. to. I, I came to a great appreciation of the power of this book and its complexity. Well, then I want your opinion. Should uh, that politician, Athanasius, was he right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd hate to admit that. <laughs> but I do think the inclusion of that book allows for some things, but, but I, I think we need to take a look at it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and be aware of, of what we're doing when we're reading scripture. I see. And if, if one can look at it as ending on a message of hope and peace and God's justice, then one reestablishes uh, a great value to it. It certainly can be read that way and has yeah. been. Is there a trajectory then... Uh, <laughs> From Genesis to, um, in the Hebrew scriptures, to the book of Revelation, in which in, when God creates the world, he sees things as good. And here we have at the very end of the, uh, the Christian Bible, the uh, book of Revelation, in which God's kingdom is established, and there's hope, and there's peace. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and there's a glorious uh, transformation of the world, yes. Mm -hmm. Very hopeful, then, in that case. Uh, it can be read that way. It can be read that way. <laughs> and sometimes it is. <laughs> and sometimes And maybe it should be more often. Yes, indeed. Well, let me uh, really shift gears now and uh, just get you to, uh, since we're speaking about hope, and some people have been using that word uh, in the past few days, let's imagine a scenario in which... Uh, the office at one of, of uh, the top office in one of the largest religious organizations in the world falls vacant. Someone resigns. And, uh, imagine that. Imagine that, yeah, which is, hasn't happened in hundreds of years, but decides to step down in favor of a younger person to run it. And lo and behold, the people who get together in what's called a conclave decide that their person is going to be, uh, for the first time in at least a millennium, a non-European, uh, a man from South America, and he comes over and he takes the name Francis after Francis of Assisi and begins immediately talking about the poorest of the poor and the most oppressed of the oppressed. Do you, as somebody who is in uh, early Christian studies, would you attach the word, the label hope to these events, or is it too soon to say? I think it's too soon to say, but I would like to. Um, you know, it's, it, it is interesting because 
uh, one would like to see a focus that hopefully he and others throughout the world in, in many religious communities uh, will have on the, on the very basic values. I mean, that's where, for example, in the book of Revelation, one thing I find with it is if you ask who goes into the New Jerusalem, mm-hmm. one thing that makes it complicated is that John says, well, the, uh, the righteous go into the kingdom, but the people who go into eternal fire, as John will have it, mm-hmm. are, he calls them the filthy, the dogs, the abominable, the evildoers, the sexually deviant. And that could be almost anybody you don't like. <laughs> but, but when you read, go back to the Gospels, right? With the Gospel, you, you know the story of Matthew 25, where Jesus is said to have spoken to the question of who, who goes into the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, the people who have you know, cared for the poor and fed the hungry and clothed the naked and visited those in prison and, and, and tended to those who are sick, that is, people who show compassion. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different message. Mm-hmm. And one would hope that in that context and many others, um, that that could be a focus mm-hmm for this tradition. But the way Christianity develops, and that's part of what I think we ought to know about it, mm-hmm. is that it's not static at all, you know? It yes. keeps transforming. Every generation mm-hmm. transforms it, and we can also transform it. Mm-hmm. And probably we need to. In the midst of that, is it worth remembering the social status of so many of those early people who were followers of Jesus in the first century and in the second, before Emperor Constantine made Christianity, the official religion of the Roman Empire. The social status? Yes. They were the dregs of society, Mm -hmm. as their enemies loved to point out. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were poor and uneducated because who else would believe such a crazy story? Mm -hmm. That a crucified man, illiterate, Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Tacitus said they worship a crucified Jew with all the kind of contempt Mm -hmm. that a Roman senator would have for an illiterate rabbi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, that movement, with its very unlikely beginnings, um, is all over the world at this point. Mm-hmm. And hopefully will be more open to other religious traditions. I think that, that's what your book is about, and mm-hmm. it's about time for that. Yeah. One hopes. You know, I, I, let me ask you one more question, and I, I hope it's a fair question, um, and that well, is... Well, they don't have to be. Oh, they don't have to be. <laughs> You're very you generous. Know. <laughs> I don't always expect fair questions. But it's, uh, it's it, given that you have written uh, at least half a dozen books now mm-hmm. that have had enormous uh, popular resonance, um, what should we expect uh, in terms of the next book? Have you, have you given it thought? What would you like to write about at this point? Well, that's a really good question. I'd, I'd like to write again about what I love about the tradition. And mm-hmm. I don't know what form that will take. Mm-hmm. Because every time I write, this book took nine years mm-hmm. of research. It's a short book, too. Mm-hmm. But I write them, as I said, in scholarly way. And then I'm teaching full time. so, mm-hmm. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. You know, when I write a book, I feel like I put everything mm-hmm. into it. And then it, it, something else emerges, but it takes some time for that. Mm-hmm. And it has to be a question 
I want to understand. I mean, I, I really think, don't you, that mm-hmm. we write to clarify something for ourselves. Mm-hmm. You write because you're trying to understand something. Mm-hmm. In this case, I was trying to understand, how does religion survive into the 21st century? Mm-hmm. How does it appeal to people still? Mm-hmm. And, and this book has to do with that. Well, it does so in a way that is so radically different from your experience if we take it back to being an adolescent going to the Billy Graham crusade at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. I mean, the, the distance between that experience and what you see now must seem just extraordinary. And is that, um, is that in itself grounds for hope? Well, maybe and maybe not. It's, you know, I, because I think what drew... I'm asking myself... What was it that was so powerful about that experience? Yeah. Or, or anyone who goes to a, an intense, committed group of religious people of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it has to do a lot with the power of emotion. Mm-hmm. I mean, this book appeals to that. It mm-hmm. speaks very deeply, mm-hmm. almost to the unconscious, you might say. And I think the sources of religious experience and the power of it is not very much about rationality. Maybe that's the key thing. Maybe that's why religion and Christianity survive into the 21st century, that word that you keep using, experience. And I can't help but think that William James would be, were he here with us, he would be nodding and saying, yes, there was my book, The uh, Varieties of Religious Experience. It's, it's an emotional, a heart thing in many ways, is it not? Combined yes. with and I love that book of his, uh, The Varieties of Religious Experience, because... You know, he writes about how he came out of a deep depression um, through hanging on to religious slogans that he didn't even believe in. But in spite of that, they were very deeply powerful for him. And he writes about that. And so many of the other books of Revelation that I talk about here are about spiritual breakthrough in exactly that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Well, there's much, much then to look forward to, and particularly in, in seeing where you go next in terms of your intellectual journey that's so wonderfully uh, made accessible to uh, the American public and beyond. It's been a pleasure having you here, and thank you again for coming to the world.